we have an opportunity to continue in our uh, Faith People uh, sermon series this morning. Uh, but it is the Easter edition. We get to talk about the empty tomb some today. Faith people, we are a people of faith. We have faith as a central experience of our faith. It's not saved by works, it's saved by faith. A trust uh, in God through Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be talking about a Christ-centered faith. You know, we've been looking at Old Testament characters and seeing their example of believing, trusting, uh, surrendering their wills to God. We've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. We find that, in, and we covered this in a sermon series before, where uh, that even in the Old Testament, we see Christ at work. We see uh, the God laying the groundwork for Christ's arrival in this world. We'll touch on that today, too. As we begin, I, I just wanted to point out, um, isn't it amazing how much people love a good rescue story? We, we seem to love good rescue stories. I know our family does, whether it's in books or in movies. In fact, one of our favorite movie uh, um, set of movies is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, we love watching the Fellowship of the Ring go about saving, rescuing Middle-earth from the evil intentions of Sauron. Of course, sometimes as a people, we like to take real events that are about a rescue, about a saving, and then we make movies about them. Apollo 13 is an example that mission to the moon that went awry and Houston and the astronauts working together to rescue those three astronauts. In the news we, uh, over the past years, we've, we've seen even as recently as this past January, 11 miners were trapped for two weeks in a mine in China and they were brought out to safety. The Thai youth soccer team back in 2018, um, if you're old enough to remember back in 1987, the whole nation was tuned in to baby Jessica who was stuck in a well for 45 hours. A week ago, just yesterday, in South Bristol, New York, a state trooper by the name of Brian Hotchkiss saved a two-year-old girl who had been lost on a mountain. And he picked her up, and she hugged him, and he brought her to say, we love rescue stories. Well, it turns out that the Bible has two really big rescue stories in it. In the Old Testament, the rescue story is... Um, uh, part and parcel of the life of Moses. Moses is the chief human figure in the rescue story of the Old Testament, where God sent Moses into Egypt to rescue God's people um, from enslavement to Pharaoh. In the New Testament, the chief human figure, we know Jesus is fully divine, fully human, uh, the, uh, the chief figure in that rescue story is Jesus. Not just to um, save people or rescue people from enslavement to a person, but to sin itself. Our God is a rescuing God. Our God is a rescuing God. It's the two biggest stories in the Bible, the defining stories of the Bible. Our God is a rescuing God. So this morning, we might ask ourselves, do we want to be rescued? Do we want to be saved? You may have seen a comparison between Moses and Jesus in the past. If we're going to look at this comparison of, uh, of Jesus and Moses, that God was laying the groundwork in Moses, but something different happened in Jesus, and maybe you've seen this comparison before. And you can go back through all the different things that they line up of, of how they may be similar but yet different. 
We know that when Moses was born, for instance, that, that Pharaoh went about try, was trying to kill the young males in the community, in the Hebrew community. We know that when Jesus was born, that, that Herod went about trying to kill the young males in the vicinity of Jesus' birth. We know that Moses uh, left Egypt and then had to return in order to save. We know Jesus was, was born in the promised land, was born in Israel, and then had to leave and go to Egypt and then return in order to save. We know that Moses parted the Red Sea, that God used Moses to part the Red Sea, and the people could walk through it. We know Jesus walked on water, even inviting, allowing Peter to do it with him. And the list goes on. Here's the big difference. When it comes to the end, we know that in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, it tells us that, that Moses, the servant of God that he was, that he died in Moab, according to God's word, and that he buried him in the valley of Moab, just opposite of Beth Peor. And the text even says, uh, but no one knows the place of burial, even to this day. That's how the story of Moses ends. He dies, not even able to cross into the promised land. He dies, he's buried, and his burial place is forgotten. But in the story of Jesus, we know that he died. We know that he died on the cross. He was fully dead. And they buried him. They knew where they buried him. They buried him in the tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And, and the women who had followed him knew where this tomb was. They went there on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. They went there, and they brought spices with them to anoint his body. In Luke's telling of the story, we know it's Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna and, and the other Mary and, and others that went with them, only to meet two angels who said to them, why are you living, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has been risen. He has risen. The differences between Jesus as the answer, the rescuer, is so different than the answer of Moses, who died in Moab. So I thought today what we would do is take a look at just three different passages in the New Testament that show us, that underscore this difference between Jesus and Moses. All the time asking, do we want to be rescued? Do we want the rescue that God provides through Jesus Christ? Our first text is going to be Acts chapter 3, verse 22 through 26. This is an interesting little passage. So this is after Jesus died on the cross, who was raised from the dead. He ascends to be with the Father in heaven, and he leaves his disciples here in this world to share the story of his life and his death and his resurrection with others. And so here's Peter and the other apostles. They're on the Temple Mount. And in this particular situation, uh, God had used Peter to heal someone. Peter healed someone in the name of Jesus. And the people around there were trying to give Peter the credit for it. And he was telling them, no, this is in the name of Jesus. And you know Jesus you killed him. And he goes, oh, wait, wait, you were ignorant about it. Let me tell you this story. And he starts to tell him the story. And he gets down to this part in verse 22. He tells the story this way. And I'm going to, on the text, I'm actually going to highlight in gold the, uh, the portion that's quoted from Deuteronomy. 
He said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. We might then refer to this portion of our conversation as a prophet like me. You know, when Moses first shared those words, that God would raise up a prophet like me for you, there was an immediate application. Moses, we've already shared, that he was not able to go into the promised land, so there had to be another one who would listen to God and speak on behalf of God to the people. Joshua was the answer to that provision. Of course, then it had a longer interpretation. And the people of God came to understand that that the prophets that would come in time over the centuries were a continuation of a prophet like me. And then some 400 years before the time of Jesus, when the time of the prophets came to an end, there was this expectation that one day, one day God would send an anointed one who would be the ultimate Moses. You know, the role of a prophet in a covenant community is to speak on behalf of God. And so the prophets of old would say, thus saith the Lord. And you knew that they were speaking what they had received in a vision from God. Thus saith the Lord. In fact, if we want to understand uh, how prophets function in the covenant community, we might think of um, the new safety features in automobiles. You know that you can purchase uh, lane assist. A lane assist will let you know that your car is drifting out of the lane. Well, that's what a prophet would do. He would, he would let you know, he would speak on behalf of God, thus saith the Lord, you're drifting out of the lane I have for you. You can get cars with blind spot warning systems. A prophet would function like a blind spot warning system. They would come along, convicted by God, led by God, and they would say to you, um, there's a blind spot. You're, you're starting to go this way. You're about set to hit something. You need to be aware of it. God's aware of it. You need to be aware of it. You can get new cars with these uh, front collision warning systems. Like, hit the brakes. Prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. Hit the brakes. You're about set to run into some choices that are not honoring of God that would lead to bad things for you. This is the role of the prophet in the covenant community. Well, it turns out that when we say that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, that his words are special. They're not like the other prophets. He does not say, thus saith the Lord. He says, you have heard it said before, but I say to you. You have heard it said before, but I say to you. In fact, we can take a look in some of the texts where we find a description of Jesus' words. We find in John 8, 28, where Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have put Jesus on the cross, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak 
just as the Father taught me. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as the Father has taught him. In Matthew 13, verses 16 through 17, we find, But blessed are your eyes, Jesus said, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. All those centuries, people were longing to hear these words of Jesus. And then he arrived. Jesus, in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus' word. Jesus' words speaking not just another prophet like Moses, but ones who words alone can save. So the empty tomb raises the question, do you want to be saved? The empty tomb raises the question, do we want to be saved? If we do, we would do well to listen to the words of Christ. The next passage we're going to take a look at is Hebrews chapter 3 makes another comparison between Jesus and Moses Hebrews chapter 3 starting in verse 3 we read for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory more honor than the house itself for every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The words we might provide for this section are the servant versus the son. Moses as the servant and Jesus as the son. You may have heard the distinction before, the differences by degree or difference by order. Let me give you an example of difference by degree. So here's an example based on colleges. Now, it's generally understood that probably the better college, the better university is UCLA. And then all other colleges come close to that except for USC. Now, you would think that USC is of a different order, a lesser order, but it's still accredited, so we have to give it something. So it's of a different degree, a way worse degree. And if you're not from L.A., you probably don't have this in your, in your bones, but you should. We could also make the um, uh, same case with food. We could, we could make a, a continuum of tastiness of food, and you know where we're going with it, that there would be tasty food, food that tastes better, and they'd all kind of be grouped somewhere around. And then, then the line would go off the chart, out of the room, down to the next county, beyond the states, down somewhere else. And you'd find peace as probably the worst tasting food. It's still a food. They say it's a food. I know you think it's of a different order. But it's just a difference of degree. It turns out Jesus is different from Moses, not just in degree. He's not just another prophet like me. 
but of Moses as a servant in the house, a servant among God's people. Jesus comes to us as the son of the father, the very builder of the house. In fact, we know from texts and texts that we've shared before, in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14, we get a sense of how different Jesus is. Fully human, yes, but also fully God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Colossians chapter 1, we hear the description in verses 18 through 20. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not just different in degree, but different in order. There's this passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus said that he had the authority to lay down his body and to take it up again. You see, the difference in order means that there's a difference in authority as well. And Jesus alone has the authority to save ultimately. God used Moses in the Old Testament to save people from Pharaoh in slavery to Pharaoh. But Jesus has, alone has the authority to save us from our sins. The empty tomb raises the question, do you want to be saved? The empty tomb raises the question, do we want to be rescued? And if we do, then there, we are called to submit to Christ's authority. Don't get me wrong. We are saved by grace. It is a free gift. Nothing we can earn. But it's a saving into submission to Jesus Christ. So then our third passage is going to be Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. In verse 24 we read, For Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In the Old Testament, in the rescuing that God provided through Moses, Moses was used of God to provide the Hebrew cultus. That's a fancy word to say, simply the, the Hebrew form and system of worship and sacrifices. So God provided these copies, these, these, um, uh, these allowances that would say a copy like, here's the temple. It, it, it's to, to be a copy of God's very dwelling place. That people would have access. This is an allowance that God is making 
so people could engage it. And what the author of Hebrews is point, of Hebrews in chapter 9 is pointing out that in Jesus Christ, it's not just the copies, but it's the real thing. The copies point toward, they give hints, and they're types that prepare the way, but they're not the real thing. Here's where we get into trouble. Oftentimes, people prefer copies. Now, those of you who have, uh, are younger than I am, um, I'll, I'll reveal just how old I am. When I was in school, we had copies that we preferred over the originals. Mimeographs. The smell was delicious. These, if you're young enough to where you don't even know what a mimeograph is, go and look it up. It's some draconian-looking machine with a big crank on it. And you turn this thing out, and you get these bluish copies that come out, and they'd hand out, and they'd be fresh, and you'd smell them, and you go, oh, beautiful. We prefer copies because copies are easier to manage. We take delight in administering copies. We can control temples. We can control a sacrificial system. But if the tomb is empty, there's no longer copies, but there's the real thing, we can't control that. It's not something that we are able to administer. Jesus is the real thing. He alone has the essential nature to save. In the Hebrew cultists, there was a system where you could take a sheep, an actual sheep, a lamb, and slaughter that for your own sins as part of your own sacrifice. John says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The real thing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, we find these words, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The empty tomb raises the question, do you want to be saved? The empty tomb raises the question, do we want to be rescued? You might think it's a ridiculous question. Who wouldn't want to be rescued? But it turns out that there are some requirements in being rescued the way that God offers rescue. Wanting to be saved requires us to acknowledge our lostness. Wanting to be rescued requires us to acknowledge our lostness. In other words, that our words, our ideas, our communities, our systems do not have the answers we need. Wanting to be saved requires us to acknowledge our inability to save ourselves. In other words, that our authority and our power are insufficient to achieve for us the abundant life. Wanting to be saved requires us to acknowledge the fallenness of our nature. In other words, that I do not possess what is essential to make things right. 
The bottom line is this, we are a faith people. And even in Moses' time, God was laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus Christ. It has been a Christ-centered faith. We even know from Colossians that all things were created uh, by him and for him, through him and for him. It's always been a Christ-centered faith. God laying the groundwork. From Abraham to Moses, Moses to Samuel, David, to, to the prophets. And so on Easter Sunday, we celebrate resurrection. Resurrection Sunday is such a great reminder of the power of Christ's words, the power of Christ's authority, and the power of Christ's essential nature to save humankind from themselves and from their sin and from death itself. Christ's resurrection, the empty tomb, means that death is defeated. God has rescued. Do you want to be rescued? Do you want to be saved? Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that you are the God over all things. That God, you, in your generosity, in your loving kindness, you not only invite us into a relationship with you in which we can enjoy your fellowship and be defined and provided for by your love, but you actually make that relationship possible. And so on this Easter Sunday, on this Resurrection Sunday, We acknowledge Christ's words are the best. That Christ's authority over our lives is ultimate. And that it's only through Christ having the essential nature that was required to pay the penalty for our sins that we have hope. That we have fellowship with you. That we have eternity with you. And so, God, we pray for each other that on this day when we hear the question, do we want to be saved, we say yes. Do we want to be rescued? That we would say yes. That we would accept your rescue, not just as an idea, but in its fullness. That we would enjoy the new life that you have called us into. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter to you. Happy Easter to you, and thank you for joining together in worship. If there's any question in your mind about how much you are loved by God, that the empty tomb had you in mind, if you have any question about that, please reach out to someone else in this room, to one of our elders, to one of our staff members, to me, and let's follow up on that. And then let's go into this world, and let's share that good news, that gospel with all those who God puts in our path. All praise be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Easter. God bless you.